the Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook, talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them. Welcome to the Instructor Podcast. As always, I am your somewhat jolly northern host, Terry Cook, and I'm delighted to be here and even more delighted that you have chosen to listen because this is a show where every week I speak to leaders and experts, innovators and game changers to look at ways that we can improve your driving school and potentially make you an even more awesome driving instructor. And today is no different because... I had the privilege of recently being invited along to the Institute of Master Tutors of Driving, the IMTD, uh, an acronym that I regularly butcher, so apologies to anyone listening. But I was invited along uh, and a wonderful day was had, uh, and I was even more privileged to then ask to become a member, which is, uh, again, lovely to be asked. So very grateful to be invited along and uh, very grateful to be asked to become a member. But the other thing I was also asked was that I was given the opportunity to record the presentations that were taken on the day. And um, a couple of excellent presentations there. So they're what you're going to be hearing today. So first up, you will hear Paul Mountford of Engage, which is a, a scheme which aims to help equip young learners with the skills and knowledge to be smarter drivers from the day they pass their test. And this presentation was around drug driving Really interesting presentation, and at the end, Paul gives some details on what we can be doing as instructors. And if you head over to the website, which you can find links for that in the show notes, that is engagedriving.co.uk, we can sign up and we get a lot of uh, useful stuff that we can work with our students on around, around those things. But yeah, that's first. Followed after that is Professor David Crundle, who is talking about online driver training basically and the switch particularly around the the speed awareness courses from in person to online how that's been mitigated how that's been managed what the problems are what the good things are and i found this particularly fascinating because uh, i i do a lot of um zoom sessions so for me it wasn't just about the the online driver training it was the the aspect of the whole online stuff altogether so fascinating conversation there and then lastly, we have a short presentation about ADAS, which is Automatic Driver Assisted Systems. And again, you can find links for all of us in the show notes. But just before we dive into this episode, I want to point you in the direction of the Instructor Podcast Newsletter. Now, you can sign up for this either by using the link in the show notes, or you can head to the website, www.theinstructorpodcast.com. Highly recommend you do. It's where you'll keep up to date with all the latest news and goings on for the Instructor Podcast and the Instructor Podcast Premium. You'll even get some exclusive content over there. But as well, it's where you'll find out all the latest updates and news around the Instructor Meganar that's taking place on the 3rd of August. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show, so make sure you hang about till the end. But yes, sign up to that newsletter, www.theinstructorpodcast.com, or check out the show notes. But for now, let's get stuck into the show. Yeah, I'm just going to talk a little while this morning about the issue of drugs and driving. Um, and normally a little bit of knowledge would be a dangerous thing, but I think this morning it might be quite useful for you to know. Obviously, you'd need to spend a lot more time with you to give you the full picture but just this little taste of this morning should be quite useful, hopefully. So a little bit about myself. I'm a retired police officer. I was in Merseyside Police for 36 years. Um, 
and I left in January this year and started a new role with my local council. Um, however, I still train the police um, as an instructor on the equipment that they use for enforcement across the country. I go around various forces on behalf of DTEC who produce the equipment. I also run a small community interest company. I say run it, it says I'm director, I'm, it's me. <laughs> I do everything. Um, but I rarely have time to do much with it now with my jobs that I'm running. So uh, it's sort of sitting there in the background really. Um, and I do still go into businesses and schools and colleges and talk about sort of preemptive education around preventing rogue crashes on the roads. Um, so a brief agenda about how big the problem is around drug driving, what the law actually says, we use the term drug drive, but what does that actually mean? Uh, what do the police currently do? Uh, and what might they do in the future? Um, and also just the, the last few slides really are about a scheme that we run in Merseyside called Engage, which is a really preemptive measure, if you like, of better educating people uh, at the learning stage. So hopefully they'll, they'll know a bit more about it as they, they start their driving careers, if you like. So, so you can see some of the stats are quite stark. In 2021, um, 75,000 offences of drink and drug driving in England and Wales and convictions have trebled in the recent years. 13% um, growth in drink drive cases in 2021 with over 33,000 motorists appearing in court and a 7% rise in deaths as a result of inebriated drivers in 2021. They're quite grim figures really, and I think it illustrates really the scale of the issue facing, facing the police in the country. And just a really local one for me, um, in 2011, um, we run a drink and drug, uh, drug drive campaign every Christmas, like every police force. And in 2011, Merseyside police arrested 18 drivers for drug driving, and 10 years later, it was 251. That's just over the course of four weeks. Um, and that's um, it's gone up again, actually, in 2022. We arrested even more than that. I think over a six-week period, it was well over 400 drivers. It's a really massive problem for police. Bear in mind, every single arrest that the police make um, involves officers being taken off the streets to process that prisoner, and quite often police vehicles, they're doubly crewed on patrol, so that's two officers taken off for every drink and drug drive arrest. So they're the people that you don't then see on the on the roads, police in the roads, effectively. So it's having a massive impact, not just on drink and drug driving, but on all the other roads, policing related issues that you see. And just a trend there for Merseyside, uh, our Christmas drink drug drive campaign, you can see the gray scale is the drug drive arrests and it's only going in one direction, sad, sad to say, uh, and alarmingly really, and perhaps underreported, uh, also, drink drivers also on the rise, not just in, in Merseyside, but elsewhere as well. So a few more stats. The law changed in 2015, and we had a new offence brought in of driving with a drug above a specified limit. Um, and in 2015, there were 1,800 drug arrests, uh, a test done with 931 arrests. And you can see uh, that last year, that 931 arrest figure had risen to 3,361 um, and virtually every other drug test is a positive test. So drug drivers, what do they look like? You might have a stereotypical image in your head about what a drug driver might look like, how you imagine them to be, uh, but in reality it's any one of those. 
And certainly in my force, and I speak to colleagues, ex-colleagues, I should say now, in Thames Valley and the Met, who I still work closely with, uh, and it's reflective there as well, that professional drivers are a big, big issue when it comes to drug driving. It's not just your young lads and girls anymore. Not that it ever was. It's um, professional people, people who drive white vans, for example, mainly for smaller companies. You can always spot them on the roadside. You look at the dashboards and you see lots of litter and paraphernalia and rubbish scattered around the cab. Doesn't mean to say they're always taking drugs, but I say to the police, if you see a van like that, always stop it and do a drug test. And we do find a lot of those drivers are testing positive for things like cannabis and cocaine. Manual trades people for some reason come up a lot. So your roofers, your window fitters, builders. Uh, in Liverpool, we have quite a few construction sites. Um, and when we do a campaign, the police just target those construction sites in the mornings and afternoons when people are coming in and going home. And you'd be amazed how many people are over the limit, limit for things like cannabis. They're clearly using them throughout the daytime as part of their jobs and they're getting in the cars to drive home. It's a really common scenario. So I apologise for the small font. Uh, I've taken some snippets from police custody records just to illustrate some points around what we see in reality. So this is the, when, when someone is arrested for drug driving or any other offence at all, and they're booked in at a custody suite, the officer will recite the circumstances of the arrest and the, and the sergeant on the desk will make a note in the custody record. And this was one such case. Uh, things to think about here, really, Ford Transit, it was a business uh, furniture removals operator. The other thing with drug driving is you'll notice with drink driving, it would often be we'd see more arrests at weekends and in the evenings and overnight, early hours of the morning. With drug driving, it's any time of the day, any day of the week. Um, there's no peak time for it at all. This was at 10.35 in the morning. Uh, it's also you tend to see, or you would think perhaps that more people during the summer months might smoke cannabis or drink more perhaps with barbecues and better weather. It isn't weather related at all. It's any time of the year, really, in November. Um, the age of the person, they're generally males, I have to say, probably 98% of our arrests are males. Um, and the age, it's not just young people, it can be a, a wide range, if you like. And I think there's a, a reality that a lot of people smoke cannabis in the same way that you or I might go and have a, a half a lager or a, a glass of wine at home. That's their way of, of, of unwinding for recreation. Uh, cannabis is incredibly um, common. Next one again, this is an HGV, HGV driver again, a professional driver, 55 years of age, four o'clock in the morning, he, he rolled his HGV on the motorway um, on the M6 and was positive for cannabis and he admitted that he'd taken cannabis two hours earlier at 2 a.m. Um, as part of his journey, again, um, strange, 55 years of age, uh, professional, supposedly professional driver. And just one more again, motorway. Uh, this was a cocaine-using driver who overtook a police vehicle, um, courier for a multinational company. He wasn't in his courier vehicle at the time, he just finished work, this chap, uh, but clearly, I've been using cocaine earlier that day uh, in work hours, if you like. Uh, he just happened to be caught on his way home as opposed to being caught in his courier van. Collisions are rising. Um, and during the COVID years, if you like, there was an average of almost one collision per week involving a drug impaired driver. 
and one in three collisions currently involve a fatality or a serious injury. It's a massive issue. So when we talk about drug driving, there are a number of different offences in the Road Traffic Act which cover drug driving, and the most serious one is causing death by careless driving whilst unfit through drink and or drugs. I guess you may all know what the, the drink drive limits are in England and Wales, um, but you don't actually need to be over a drink drive limit to commit an offence of drink driving, which is a bit of a, it, it should be more better known, even amongst the police, sadly, it's a very under-policed area of work. Um, Section 4 of the Road Traffic Act creates this offence of being unfit through drinking drugs, but you don't need to be over the limit to be unfit. Uh, we probably all know, we may be ourselves, the sorts of people who even a small amount of alcohol can have quite a big effect on you. And sometimes it depends on the time of the day that you're drinking or whether you are your, your physical shape, if you like, whether you're fully fit or not, healthy or not. Even small amounts of alcohol can have quite a big effect on us as people and on our driving. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need to be over a drink drive limit to be unfit. And that was the offence that was brought in in March 2015 where the government created this offence of driving with a drug above a specified uh, limit. And they listed a number of drugs that were going to be covered by the new legislation at the time. Uh, the police can test to see if people are over the limit for any one of those drugs. Unfortunately, the police can only test for two of the drugs of the 17, which is cannabis and cocaine. They were chosen because they're the most commonly used or misused, shall we say, drugs. But there are a whole range of other drugs that are covered by this legislation. This is a slide that I use for police training because the column on the right is what we call a time and a half column. And that's the length of time it takes for that drug, once it's been taken into the human body, to reduce by 50% or half. So cannabis, for example, has a very low limit of two uh, micrograms or nanograms, but within two hours it will have reduced by half. Um, now we speak about those huge numbers of arrests that people um, that the police make, if you like. Um, but the number in effect is probably a lot higher for every case that we see going through the courts for a huge number of cases that don't make it that far, simply because the police uh, can't get the people into custody quickly enough to get that evidential sample to see what the level is like. And they're losing evidence every, with, with cannabis, they're losing 50% of that every two hours. And you can be waiting in an airlock in a custody suite for two hours sometimes to go in. So the I'm saying there's a big problem based upon the arrest figures. It's even bigger than you might imagine, really. So the police can require people to take what they call preliminary tests. Uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with those. You'll be familiar with the breath test, I imagine. Field impairment testing. Do you know much about field impairment testing? I can give you a, a brief update on that shortly. And drug screening tests. Do you know when the police can conduct those tests? Can the police randomly test people? No, they can't. They can't randomly test people. They need to have cause, if you like. So if you've been involved in a collision, they can test you. If you've committed what they call a moving traffic offence, or if they suspect that you've got drink, alcohol, or drugs in your body, you've been using them recently, again, they can test you and use any one of those tests. Um, you need to be driving a motor vehicle. Um, and again, any minor offences even can be you know, broken light, an empty washer bottle, you name it, effective tyre, they can require the driver to take one, any one of those tests, if you like, or all of them, um, and any accidents at all. Um, I struggle to say the word accidents, I always say collision, because I work with an organisation called Road Peace, 
and we don't use the the A word as you would call it. We believe the, the collisions. People don't buy, don't crash by accident. They crash because they've they've, they've done something poor. They've made a bad choice, a bad decision. They're going too fast, uh, and it irritates when they hear on the radio. Uh, they use uh, the motorways are closed because of an accident. It's it's not an accident. It's a collision. Uh, anyway, I digress. So um, so on the fit, it's the ability to drive uh, that's impaired, not the drive, not the actual driving. Um, this is a big issue in police. I've spoken about arrest figures. The police, I'll be, it's not very controversial because I tell them anyway, they're overly reliant on technology. They're overly reliant upon the equipment. Um, very few drivers are arrested for being unfit through drinking drugs. Very, very few. They're arrested for either failing a breath test or failing a drug test. And I've known police officers dealing with drivers who can barely stand up and they're trying to breathalyze them. And you're wondering why are you doing that? Because the guy can't stand up. He's clearly unfit to do anything. Never mind provide a breath test, but they're forcing that breathalyzer tube into the mouth to get them to blow. There's no point at all. Um, and the Crown Prosecution Service have agreed that the police don't need to see any particularly bad driving. It's based upon the driver's condition, not how they drove the vehicle. But it does help, obviously, in any case that the police will deal with. So the benefits of this new, I say new, it's been out for a few years now. Uh, it brings some clarity, and it does. If you're over the limit for cannabis or cocaine or any one of those other drugs, that's the offence complete. There's no need to prove that they were unfit in any way. It's not always a simple speedy case, but generally speaking, that is true. And we don't need the doctor's uh, input, if you like, in many of these cases. If the roadside test is positive, they simply take a sample and the level is confirmed by an evidential one over the limit. Jobs are good and really so. There's lots of medicinal drugs covered by the legislation, which the police don't test for, by the way. Um, so this new law allows people who are using those particular drugs to continue to use them, um, and they shouldn't risk being prosecuted so long as it doesn't cause them to be unfit. Uh, they've got a defense, if you like, to use those drugs. And if they are over the limit for any one of them, so long as they're not unfit, then they've got a defence in law. And they use things called drug wipes. And it's a roadside test, which takes about eight minutes to do. Um, only tests for two drugs. And as you can be, you know about being aware, there's a whole range of drugs out there that the numbers are increasing every day, uh, which the police can't test for. They can only test for two at the moment, uh, which is cannabis and cocaine. Uh, do you know about medicinal cannabis? Suppose it's so called, you've heard a lot about that. That's not covered by this legislation and it's not tested for by these devices. They only test for THC, which is a metabolite of cannabis, which causes, uh, it has a psychoactive effect, if you like. CBD, which you can buy quite normally in health shops and supermarkets and online, that shouldn't cause any uh, impairment and therefore you can legally take CBD cannabis, but you can't obviously use the illegal cannabis, which has got THC in it. Um, each case, each drink, uh, each drug drive case can take quite a long time to go to court because it's such a huge problem. And there are only a limited number of forensic labs in the country to deal with this massive workload. There is a huge backlog in cases and some cases are being lost because they go over the six month statutory period uh, where people then aren't, aren't uh, prosecuted at all. It really is a huge problem at the moment. 
Oops. Um, I spoke about the tests and I mentioned about them only testing for two particular drugs. So how do the police know if someone has been taking LSD or amphetamine or um, any other drug for that matter? These tests are underused and there are very few of these tests actually done, but they're still evidentially valuable because the police now, I'm not being too critical of them, they've got a magic drug drug tester which they'll test people with and it gives them a positive or a negative and with these tests they take a bit longer they take about 20 minutes whereas a drug test is eight minutes but of course the drug tests only test for cannabis and cocaine so if you you're someone who's taken amphetamine or ketamine or one of these psychoactive things or nitrous oxide which is fairly commonly seen nowadays uh, a drug test isn't going to show that at all so you need to prove that someone's impaired and these tests are very good. When they're done, I would say probably these tests are only done when the officer really suspects someone has taken drugs. So I'd say in 80% of these tests, they're not able to perform them very well at all. Um, and it just gives them that visual evidence, if you like, that somebody clearly was impaired to drive. So I spoke earlier on about the Engage scheme. I know, Cathy Higgins, you'll be familiar with this because you're on our scheme, aren't you? Um, but uh, with Engage, we, some years ago, um, I was in road policing for 27 years, so it's really all I knew. And I would look at our collision stats and see the numbers of young drivers who were crashing the cars, who were dying on the roads. And naively at the time, I didn't know much about driving instruction. Uh, I, knew, I thought to myself, why is this happening? Because these are drivers who recently learned to drive recently undergone a course of lessons, passed the driving test, so they've been shown to be competent, I thought, back then. And yet when they get in the cars with their friends, within a matter of months, or in the first 12 months, they're, they're killing themselves and the passengers, you know, um, what, what's, what, where, where are we failing these people? Why is this happening? And of course, and I go into schools and colleges, and I speak to sixth formers who've recently passed the driving tests and asked them, what do you know about alcohol and drugs and drug driving? And they say, don't know about that at all. But you've just recently took your driving test. Didn't learn about that. Okay, well, what about sort of driving with your, your passengers in your cars and, and, and peer pressure from your friends who might be egging you to drive in a certain way that you're not comfortable with? Did you learn any coping strategies around that? And they'd say, um, no, we didn't cover that either. Well, wouldn't you have thought that would have happened? And I'd speak to driving instructors and they say, we don't know enough about that really to talk about drink driving and drug driving. What, how would we tell people all about that? And we sort of saw a problem. Um, and so we started Engage some years ago um, where we worked with driving instructors. I say we, it was the police and the road safety partnership. And I still do it now, even though I'm outside of the police. And we uh, ask instructors if they'll have a conversation, if you like, or do a module with these new drivers, with the novices, about some of the issues that we see, uh, the real life issues that result in road deaths and people, uh, drivers and passengers being killed and badly injured. Uh, and they're just the number of, currently the number of modules that are delivered by ADIs during the course of, a, uh, of the driving lessons. So no extra time involved. Um, so they sign up to our Engage scheme, they have access to a website with all the supported materials are there in the background that they can access. Um, we have regular meetings, 
with them to update them on uh, collision data. Could be any any trends that we're seeing, so they can share that with the new drivers. Um, it's a really effective scheme. I'm sure, Kathy, you you find some value in being on it. Um, and aside from the the road safety aspect of it, we I, I work with the DVSA quite closely now, actually, uh, on the Wirral uh, and the examiners. And the examiners say to me, I can spot an engaged driving instructor on the standards check because they're so much more confident, not just in, in, in talking about the topics, but in the way they drive, the way they handle themselves with pupils. Um, and they say, we can spot an engaged instructor because they, they're far more confident on the standards check than a non-engaged one. And we're looking now to get some accreditation from the DVSA. Um, to really support what we're doing with Engage. Um, I was really interested earlier on with the, the what you were talking about, the first speaker, because um, with um, with the DVSA now, we've got a pilot scheme on the wheel where examiners are going into schools and they're talking about the test day experience, if you like, what people uh, are going to expect when they turn up for the driving test to try and break down some of those myths, if you like, and barriers and break down some of those nerve issues. Um, so we're actually starting to go into schools with them, spend some time saying, well, you've got your test booked in four weeks. What do you think your test day is going to be like? This is how it's going to be structured. This is what you're going to do when you turn up, just to break down some of those barriers around nerves and things. Um, so we are working quite closely with the DVSA. And this is all aimed, I mean, we talk about drinking drugs. It's all about giving people that bit of knowledge, if you like, to help them make better choices. No, thank you very much indeed. Most oh, great to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're going to be back in just a moment with Professor David Crondall and ADAS because we're just taking a slight pause in the show to give a shout to the latest sign-ups to the Instructor Podcast Premium. And they are Chris Gregory and Peter Morley. So big thank you to those guys for signing up. They immediately get access to over 100 trainings, over 100 trainings, both audio, video, and even some written ones as well based on a variety of topics massively relevant to driving instructors, including coaching and mindfulness for driving instructors, how to become a better instructor, how to run your business better, all that kind of cool stuff. Fast becoming one of the go-to places for CPD in our industry. And I am getting fed up of people telling me that it's the best CPD resource around. I'm not really keep telling me that I like it. Um, there, if you are considering joining up, there are two different levels. There is a £10 tier where you get all the content, so you'll get access immediately to over 100 trainings, and you'll get the two or three, well, usually more than that, but at least two or three a month that I put out as well going forward. And you'll get some exclusive discounts for some wonderful other resources in that industry. That's for the £10 a month tier. If you want to upgrade your CPD even more, you can sign up to the £22 tier where you can take things interactive and you can join in on certain podcasts or watch them being recorded live. But not only that, you get access to my Zoom room four times a month where you can come in with your problems and we will solve them. And then you also get access to the expert sessions, which are exclusive to the £22 here, where uh, once a quarter, someone comes in and delivers an expert session. We've had excellent ones on so far about delivering roundabouts. We've had one by Kevin Tracy Field on how to manage your learners' nerves on test day. And the next one is with Dave Shannon about tax 
So some excellent resources there, and they stay in the vault as well, so you can always refer back to them. And the best place to find out more or sign up, again, is to go to the website, www.theinstructorpodcast.com. Okay, thank you very much for um, uh, uh, for the invite to come back and speak to you guys. Um, I was here in... 2019, I think it was, um, and I was talking at that point about VR in hazard perception. Um, that work has continued on now, some very exciting stuff that we're doing there um, in more of a fleet, um, fleet-based fleet approach. So we've now got 360 hazard clips for HGVs and for um, uh, light commercial vehicles, all very exciting, but I'm not going to be talking about anything about that today. I am going to be talking about online driver training. So as Graham mentioned, he's, uh, he asked me to give you a little bit of a preview of, um, of some of the work we've, uh, we've been up to. But first of all, I should probably make it clear what hat I am wearing while doing this talk. Um, I wear a number of hats, as many people do in this industry. My, my biggest hat, I guess, is that I'm a professor of psychology at Nottingham Trent University. Um, that's the day job, so to speak. And that's where we do lots of fun research on a wide range of issues. One of the things we did over the last five years or so was a big, big study on mindfulness. So very interested in the anxious driver um, sort of angle as well. However, I'm not going to be talking with a Nottingham Trent University hat on today. I'm also uh, one of seven people who formed the research development unit at UK ROED. So if you've not come across them, I can't imagine anyone in this room hasn't come across UK ROED. But this is the organization that is tasked with um, uh, creating, maintaining and delivering the Endors courses. Of course, speed awareness is the most famous one, um, but there's a whole suite of other courses, motorway awareness, what's driving you, safe and considerate driving. In fact, um, there was three of us on the RDU that have just finished and launched the National Rider Risk Awareness course. Um, so this is the motorcycle course that uh, if you are a motorcyclist and you get caught doing something such as filtering without due care and attention, maybe jumping a red light, you will hopefully get the opportunity to come on this course. It replaces a previous course called Ride. Um, which was uh, which was out there since 2013. So it's a very much a refresh and an update. Well, lots of brand new content to that course, and some of some of my experience in UK Road is going to come through in this talk. But again, it's not the hat I'm wearing. Also, I am co-founder of a spin-out company called East Situ Solutions from the university. We won some Innovate UK funding to take our hazard perception, risk-based perception work out to the fleet market. And that's where a lot of our VR stuff and our online hazard tests have gone. Uh, very exciting work uh, in that area. But that's not the hat I'm wearing either. Today, the hat that I am wearing is through my association with PACTS the Parliamentary Advisory Council for Transport Safety, um, a charity that was set up 40-odd years ago with the primary goal of bringing in seatbelt legislation, which was a big win um, early on for PACTS. And PACTS continues through its membership to bring expertise and knowledge um, to lobby the government for, uh, for safe driving practices.
So what am I talking about from a PAX point of view today? Well, one of the things we do in PAX when we get our members together, I have um, a, the honour of chairing the Road User Behaviour Working Group. And we have a, a good size membership and we get these people together and we make use of their expertise by writing documents uh, and papers for publication. And the one thing that we've been focusing on for the last year or two is an introspective piece, a data collection piece on the rapid shift that we saw from online, uh, from face-to-face driver training in classrooms through to uh, online training, which was uh, uh, precipitated by the pandemic. So a little bit of background. Of course, we've got a lot of, or we had a lot of, face-to-face training courses um, which were based in the classroom all across the UK. Uh, A lot of these, of course, CPC, um, especially for HGV drivers with their mandated 35 hours, but lots of other courses for professional drivers as well. Then, of course, we've got uh, voluntary advanced courses. We've got diversionary courses. So courses where people are caught for, say, drink driving, and they may get, get put on a drink drive rehabilitation course. And, of course, the Endors scheme, the National Driver Offender uh, Retraining Scheme, where if you get caught doing something, you have the opportunity to go on one of those courses in order to avoid the points and fine. Of course, that's not what we really want with that. We want you to be grasping the opportunity to actually take some advanced training rather than just be doing it to avoid the points and the and the fine. But also, we have to be realists. They are fine avoiders when they come in. What we want them to be is advanced drivers with a new enlightened outlook when they leave. And sometimes that works. So we've seen this shift from face to face. Then COVID hit, the pandemic shut everything down uh, in March 2020. And those face to face courses had to close down. Those training providers needed a way to maintain their um their, their training to keep that training going on so that's when everyone rushed to online training using video conferencing software teams zoom other conferencing software is available um, but those are the two biggies um of course, there's a lot of different types of online training. So you can have e-learning training, asynchronous training, message board related training. All of those officially are sort of online. So we use the term VILT to distinguish this type of online training from all of those others. It stands for Virtual Instructor-Led Training. And essentially, it's trying to capture what happens in a classroom, but put it online. So your instructor is gonna be there, their face is on screen, they are talking to you. You can see everyone else in that training uh, group um, and the course is given pretty much as it would be given in that classroom setting. Now, it turns out that what we would, well, what we were doing with this paper is we were gonna go back and have a look at the literature try and understand what the studies say about VILT, virtual instructor-led training, and then also go out and uh, interview trainers and providers about their experiences through that shift to online training. In this process, we came across actually real theoretical positions of how people should be developing virtual instructor-led training. 
Of course, none of these were referenced or looked at or no one was interested in these come March 2020. They just needed to get the stuff online as quick as possible. But I think it helps us to try and view what's happened over the last few years in light of these theories. Media, media naturalness theory is perhaps the one which is most uh, pertinent here. And it acknowledges the fact that communication is an evolutionary process. We have evolved to the point uh, where communication face-to-face -face in this sense is natural. It's automatic. We don't need to worry about um, thinking consciously about when we interject. It happens automatically through a mixture of cues, not just the verbal cues, but also the visual cues in terms of body posture, in terms of tilting of the head. All of these micro behaviors fit into that communicative process. One of the problems that arises from media naturalness theory, however, is if we start moving into an unnatural communication environment, then we run the risk of creating ambiguity in the message. And we run the risk of increasing the cognitive demand, the workload on those people involved in that communication. The more different the communication style is from this naturally evolved conversation, the harder it is going to be. So the main message from this is make it as straightforward as possible, as close to the real thing as possible. Then we've got the media richness theory. This is much more progressive. This is saying, grab those opportunities. Look at the new technology you've got. Look at these new communication uh, media and don't view it as being natural to unnatural on a continuum. View it as being impoverished to rich. And actually what we can do with new technology, with new communication media, is we can increase the richness of that communication style. So for instance, in terms of people sat at home watching training on their laptops, well, all of a sudden they've got access to a whole suite potentially of third-party software that could be brought in to enhance that learning experience. Virtual whiteboards, for instance, could be brought in to make the learning experience even better than it would be in, say, a face-to-face -face context. Great in theory, admittedly, this media richness theory as applied to, let's say, Vilt. But of course, as I said right at the time, no one was bothered in theoretical positions. No one was bothered in terms of working out how to make training even better. It was just racing to get the stuff online so that we could maintain uh, transport safety through these courses. There's also the problem that it's not just the trainers and the providers who need to be ready to invest in media richness. Your clients, your trainees, they have to be ready for it as well. And if they were dragged into online training and then all of a sudden we're throwing, them, throwing at them lots of third-party bits of software, we're going to overwhelm them. So media richness theory, great in theory but very, very difficult and understandably avoided in this first few years of where we've rushed online. There is a sort of halfway house here, media compensation theory, which acknowledges that we do have evolutionary standards of communication that are very important to us, and we need to try and emulate some of them um, in order to maintain great communication in that learning environment. But it's quite happy in, with media compensation theory to value some things over others. So for instance, 
One of the big things that comes out of media compensation theory is that audio is key. Yes, visuals are important for all those nuanced conversations, but if the visuals break down, as I'm sure you've seen it, some people will just say, well, I'll just turn my camera off um, because I'm getting a bit of lag. And yes, there is a little bit of discomfort that you're staring at someone you can't see and they're staring at you and they can see you. And you can't really say, well, if you've turned yours off, I'm going to turn mine off as well. So there, you can't really get away with that. Um, so there is, there, there is problems with losing the visuals, but the audio is the most important. If people start um, stuttering due to Wi-Fi breakup or broadband breakup, then the message doesn't get across. So media compensation theory, halfway house that acknowledges we have to focus on the key, most important elements in this learning environment. So what did we find when we did this study? Looking at the literature, um, beyond those theories, but also looking at interviews with our trainers and providers. Looking at the trainers' experience, the first thing we noticed, or the first thing they reported, my gosh, this was a steep learning curve. Understandably, not all trainers wanted to go into this uh, learning process. Some of them decided to step back and wait till face-to-face -face training came back. Some decided to de uh, retire early. But for those who stayed with it, they did report a very steep learning curve, getting to grips with the software, getting to grips with the new training style that was required. Trainers also found themselves doing two jobs. They weren't just training and putting across the information, engaging with their audience. They were also IT troubleshooting. Yes, a lot of these trainers did have some backroom staff from their training organizations that would help them prior to the course to make sure that they were online. But when you're in that virtual room with them, very few of them had recourse to call in um, external IT support. So they were being IT support as well as being trainers. And when you've got sort of like maybe 10 or 20 other people waiting in your virtual room for things to start, that's putting extra pressure on these trainers. Of course, hardware and broadband limitations were always going to be an issue right from the off. Um, not everyone's got the high spec computers that can uh, that can deal with certainly Teams is a is a mammoth beast of a program that does drain resources quite a bit. Um, so it was important to make sure that our trainers had um, both the hardware and also good enough broadband in order to create the or to engage with uh, their clients. Of course, they were all doing this from home at the time because everyone was locked down. Um, so this had to be their own personal broadband that they were using. But it's not just the trainers who were limited in terms of their uh, hardware. A lot of clients, a lot of trainees, especially when you start thinking about endorse courses, um, where you've got people from all over the spectrum of the UK driving scene, are limited in terms of maybe the hardware they've got. Not everyone's got a laptop, a high-spec PC, or even a tablet. So you do get people still trying to join on mobile phones. And that can be problematic, not least if you're, let's say, doing hazard perception. You're saying, let's have a look at this hazard perception clip, see where the danger's coming from. Very difficult to do that if your screen is only this big. It doesn't really give you the subtlety of cues that you need. But also, we've got issues uh, in that you might be able to see the PowerPoint screen that's being displayed at the time, but then you won't be able to see the faces of other people within your group. And that vibrancy of being part of that group is a very important process uh, in this training experience. So they're losing out on that as well. 
There were, however, a lot of positives that came out of these interviews. Not least the pragmatic benefits that you are removing travel time and you are removing things like venue hire. Certainly, if you have to travel an hour to get to a four-hour course, then an hour home, that's an immense increase in, in terms of the resources or the time that you have to devote to that course, both for the trainer's point of view and the client's point of view. Removing that streamlines uh, course efficiency. It also removes geographical restrictions in attendance. So I told you um, about at the start about the motorcycle course um, that we've just refreshed and renewed. Well, the original course was very favorably received back in 2013, but the big problem was we weren't getting a lot of riders referred to it. Now, riders themselves, they make up a small amount of uh, traffic on the road, about 1% of vehicle miles traveled. And that means that if you get um, a course running in, let's say, Brighton, you might only get two people attending that course. And certainly if it's face-to-face, -face, that is incredibly expensive to put on. Um, however, when you are online, you might have the two people in Brighton who were caught, but you've got two people from Aberdeen, uh, someone from Edinburgh, Manchester, Liverpool, York. You can bring them all together in the same place online, which means that these courses are more efficient and more likely to be sustainable in the future to keep them running. The other nice thing is our trainers did confirm that people seem more receptive when they are sat in their own space, more open-minded, more willing to engage. So when you place them in a classroom, they feel a little bit of uncomfortableness in that first instance because they are literally out of their comfort zone. You keep them in their comfort zone, in their study, in their bedroom, in their living room, in their dining room or even kitchen, then they feel that they are grounded in their own location and therefore become more open-minded to the lessons that are being taught. It also means that for those few people who still like to be wallflowers, as our trainers uh, refer to them, those ones who would prefer to sit at the back of the classroom and keep quiet, it's very hard for them to hide. They are the same size on screen as everyone else. And certainly for Endor's courses, there is an insistence there. It's a, a definite requirement that everyone has to have their camera on. So that means it's very much harder for these wallflowers to hide. They do get brought into conversation. Quality monitoring can also be less intrusive. So a lot of quality monitoring, again, with the Endors courses, involves someone sat at the back of the room watching the presentation. That can be a little distracting um, for, for people who are clients and trainees in the room. But now they can sit and they can have their camera off um, and just watch passively in the background of, uh, uh, of an online course, or even with the appropriate permissions in place, potentially watch a recording of that show, of that training event afterwards. There was also the benefit that when people were moving online, they were finding that certain things didn't work quite as well. So obviously certain discussion points weren't going to work as well. So it forced them to review the content and refresh the content. And that was seen as a positive. The big benefit, however, though, is that for those providers who monitored some level of client satisfaction, client satisfaction went up. People like this. They like doing courses from their own home rather than traveling to a venue where they don't necessarily know where it is um, and then having to travel home again. They really enjoy this method of training. And of course, 
as client satisfaction goes up, what we hope is that that means that the learning benefits are going to increase as well. We don't quite have that evidence yet, but that evidence is being collated. What I want to do with the remaining elements of this talk is just pick out a few issues that I think were quite important that came out of this, um, uh, this research, this piece of work. And the first one is around accessibility. Certainly, we had great concerns at the start of the pandemic that this move to online training was going to have a negative impact on accessibility, especially for the older generation, uh, the generation that we might think isn't as um, computer savvy, isn't as technically comfortable. Um, it turns out that for many of our trainers who we talked to, this did not seem to be an issue. Um, the older participants were able to get online. Uh, if they were having troubles, oftentimes what they'd do is they would have recruited a digital native, i.e. their granddaughter or their grandson or the kid from over the road would have been there setting them up right at the start. And then once they got into the virtual classroom and it all started, any initial anxiety tended to disappear quite quickly. So that's a big benefit as well. One of those fears that there was going to be age barriers to this technology doesn't seem to be an issue. But there are also other potential accessibility uh, or accessible issue groups, such as deaf participants, such as non-native speakers who might have trouble with the language. They can have uh, huge benefits here as well, or see benefits in the use of live text, which can do real-time uh, subtitles uh, for people. So we don't need translators. We don't need uh, signers or anything like that. Fatigue was something that did come out, often termed Zoom fatigue. And it does seem that it actually is real. There are studies to show that people really are affected by this when online. Understandably so, because the communication is much more demanding. Those, as I mentioned before, those automatic processes that we go through when we're actually communicating with each other, they now have to be conscious. So if we're having a conversation, maybe there's a few of us stood around the water cooler at work, I'll just wait for a pause. I might lean in, I might raise a hand in a, in a jocular way to show that I'm about to make a, a point. And then everyone pauses uh, and then I make my point. It's so simple and it's an automatic behavior that we engage in. No longer the case, however, in these online settings, you have to raise your hand, virtually raise your hand. So you have to remember to do that. And then the trainer has to remember to actually check whether hands are raised so that they can ask or, or invite you to ask the question. And then you've got all of those problems of things like remembering to put your mic on. How many people, I'm pretty sure it's everyone, has started saying something and then everyone goes, no, your mic's still on. Happens to everyone. Or the problem of the legacy hand, where you've asked your question, you forgot to put your hand down. And then about five minutes later, they go, oh, Crundle's got a question. They go, no, no, sorry just forgot to put my hand down. And you put your hand down in shame. So all of these things are problematic because they're not automatic behaviors anymore. It requires conscious thought. And because we're doing this consciously, plus throwing a little bit of anxiety about your legacy hand shame, it's all cognitively demanding. Plus, everyone is staring at you. Now, admittedly, Eye contact in these settings isn't quite perfect because cameras are always offset uh, from where people are looking on the screen. 
But for the most part, you stand far enough back or they're far enough back away from the camera, it looks more or less like they're staring at you. That's not something evolutionarily that humans like. There's two reasons why people stare at you intently, sexual interest and threat. Both of those in this sort of situation are anxiety provoking. You know that neither of those are real in that situation, but it affects you somewhere in that evolutionary reptilian brain of yours, that, that mammalian part of it at least, uh, where we are aware that there is a potential for fight or flight here. Overcoming that, again, is anxiety provoking and it's cognitively demanding to pat that down. Then you've got this other issue. We've got that dreaded little box right in the corner that shows what you look like. And it's inevitable that humans are self-monitors. We are interested in what we look like when we are having communications. And even if you're forcing yourself not to look at your hair or um, how you look or what you've forgotten to remove from the background, just the effort required to not look at yourself is, again, cognitively demanding. Finally, you've got to sit still. Now, when you're in a normal communication environment, Let's say you're all sat on chairs. Somebody might tilt back a bit. Somebody might lean over to get something. Somebody might, they'll, they'll move around. They'll look away. That's fine. But when you're online, there is this requirement, certainly more so for trainers than it is for trainees, but of course the, the requirement for trainees is implicit, that you stay within that frame. And there's none of that sidling out or general slouching or leaning back in your chair because then everyone's looking straight up your nostrils. There's none of that that you want to be seen on the screen. So you have to maintain that body position. And again, that is cognitively demanding. So in these situations, we've got a whole host of things going on that is more problematic. You know, with Endors, we even explicitly tell um, the, uh, the, the trainers, how to present themselves on screen. So we've got to make sure that they're not too far away, not too close, not at the wrong angle, just right. The Goldilocks position where you've got head and shoulders. So there is a problem with Zoom fatigue and it means that courses feel longer. There's even a little bit of evidence to suggest that courses might be longer if you take the same material and you do it online. It might run longer because you've got those communication difficulties that you have to overcome. Although perhaps some evidence suggests that once the trainers have got into the swing of things, that the courses will start to become more comparable in length. But the big problem is it just feels longer. You feel tired. You feel like you've been at it for a much longer time. So in order to maintain that level of engagement with the, uh, with the learning, we really, really need to be aware that courses should be shorter wherever possible. And certainly in, uh, with the Endors courses, we recognize that and we reduce the courses by 25%. So a four-hour speed awareness course became a three-hour online course. Of course, that leads to all sorts of problems. What do you throw out? Because everything's gold dust in those sorts of courses. Um, uh, so it was really difficult to actually decide what to remove uh, in order to bring that course time down. There's another issue about how many is too many. Now, the, the courses we looked at, the trainers that we looked at um, or talked to, their courses ranged from around about nine to 20 people. 
Now, it turns out when we looked into this, there's not a great deal of research out there about uh, group size in VILT, in these online training courses. Of course not, because it's been relatively recent that we've, uh, that we've moved to that size. Most of the work has been done on face-to-face -face communication, which really doesn't translate as well. So what we've had to do here is let's consider the trainer workload because they've got to remember these people, who's engaged, who's not engaged, who said this, who didn't say that. They've got to have a handle on that. But they've also got to be able to see the faces of these people. They've got to be large enough on their screens um, so that they can see the emotional reaction that they may have. Certainly, if you are playing a video that is traumatic, you want to be watching for anyone who's going to be triggered because you need to make sure um, that you follow up with them and, uh, and dispel any negative uh, consequences of watching that video. And so on that basis, also, if we think about it, there's a classic number in psychology um, for working memory, which is seven plus or minus two. This has been out since the 50s, and it's the idea that if you have uh, just random bits of information that you have to remember, such as num digits that are completely unconnected, then on average, the, uh, the average person will remember seven of those digits. But there is a little bit of leeway. Some people might be slightly better, some people slightly worse. So that's why it's plus or minus two. So nine is about the maximum size of working memory capacity. Um, I mean, there's lots of subtleties to that argument and we could spend all day talking about it, but it's a rule of thumb um, that, that we were using here to help us come up with a suggestion of nine people um, for training in this instance. Of course, the more people you train, the more effective, the more efficient your course is, but not necessarily the more effective. Um, small group discussion was one of those things that was desperately wanted right at the start of the pandemic. And thankfully, breakout groups have got more effective. We're less likely to lose people in the ether when they go off to breakout rooms now, because you can automatically set it that you get set, you send them to the room, you give them a time limit, 15 minutes, and then it automatically drags them back. Unfortunately, when you lose that human element of dragging people back, it means that they could be in the middle of telling a very, very um, personal story about trauma. And then halfway through that, they find themselves back in the main main room. So there are still issues there, um, but the software is getting better. So nowadays, for instance, we have rankings for who puts up their virtual hand first, which means that we lose out on that. So, so who's next? Who's next with the questions? We don't have to worry about that anymore. So in conclusion, what top tips can we take from this, there are, there are many more sort of things in the actual report, and I'll encourage you to, um, to, to go and download it once it becomes publicly available. But good IT support is needed, and that is needed beyond the trainer. The trainer shouldn't be the only uh, person who is knowledgeable about IT in your training industry, in your training organization. You need to lay ground rules at the start. Inappropriate behavior is something that can be nipped in the bud if you say to people right at the start, this is what we expect of you and this is what you should expect of me and let's progress from there. Classes need to be large enough for debate. There seem, there 
has to be that vibrancy that comes from talking to each other or talking with that group. Plus also, one of the big barriers to behavioral change is the perceived social norms. So if you're in a one-to-one situation and you tell someone, yeah, you were caught speeding, you're like, well, well, it's speed cameras. No one likes speed cameras. Well, actually, the evidence suggests that more people are in favor of speed cameras than against them. Are they going to believe you? But if you're in a room where there's eight other people say, yeah, actually, I, I think speed cameras are very good. There's one outside my child's uh, school, and I think that's vitally important. Then having that challenge through social norms is very important. But you go too large in the class, you're going to find it uncontrollable. Courses should be as short as possible. You've got to try and avoid that Zoom fatigue or Teams fatigue. And you really do have to make sure that all of your media work. And this is a problem that we faced with our motorcycle course. We had some wonderful, wonderful videos done that were all in high def and absolutely beautiful, really impactful. And to get them to play uh, streaming, so difficult. So we had to constantly degrade the quality of the video. Still looks okay, uh, but now hopefully it will work in these settings. Um, But if you Don't trial and trial and trial uh, these media across different platforms, across different browsers. You're you're in, in for problems further down the line. And finally, the one thing I think we'll finish on is that it has been a success. It's been rushed. It was rushed. We didn't have time to plan this move properly. We were forced into it. And that's partly why we've done this paper as a retrospective of that process, what we've learned, what we might be able to do better in the future. But overall, considering we rushed into this and it was out of necessity, it's turned out remarkably well. There have been issues, there will still be issues, but overall, it has been very beneficial. And many of the training providers we're talking to um, have gone back to -to face-to-face training but they have maintained their online training uh, capabilities as well. And I think that's a sign that we are, we've, we've definitely not had a blip in the way that training is given, but we've seen a step change. And this is going to be with us, like it or not, for the foreseeable future. And with that, with sort of slightly over the half an hour that Graham, uh, Graham allotted me, um, I will finish. Thank you very much. Right, everyone. As it says up there, everyone, I've been uh, in the driver trading industry in all sorts of roles for quite a long time. Not as long as some of us down there, like Neil. And uh, Graham has asked me to make you guys aware of the Adash Hub. There is a uh, web link there if you want to copy it down, which I'll bring up later on again. So it's just very, very basic is this. Now... Autonomy in vehicles. This is my own personal view. There's five stages. We've got uh, stage one, hands, feet, eyes and brain. Would you all agree agree with that? Stage two is hands, eyes and brain. I've got a stage two vehicle out there. I doubt very much about the brain, but anyway. Um, Stage three is eyes and brain. I believe we're just going into stage three. Stage four is just brain only. And I never thought this would would happen in my lifetime. Stage five, no hands, no feet, no eyes, no brain. Would you all agree with me that's that's happening on some roads now? 
in experimental stages. Um, but what this um, deals with is uh, ADAS, which is an acronym for Automatic Driver Assistant Systems. Now then, first of all, let me ask you, hands up those who've got um, um, speed limiters on the vehicles. Hands up those who've got cruise control on the vehicles. Hands up those who don't use them. Everyone, um, I find it, sometimes I find it irritating, especially when we're driving a long way, where I'm having to encourage my wife to use the adaptive cruise control, the speed limiter, she's got them all on her vehicle. And she just, she's just frightened of them. That's what we were talking about earlier. Um, or she's uncomfortable, uncomfortable to change. Now, ADAS technology have the potential to prevent deaths by 20,000 a year. Or about 62% of the road deaths. Now, a lady called Dr. Martha Newsom, and I've taken this all from the ADAS site and also some information that Graham gave me. A lady called Dr. Martha Newsom, a cognitive psychologist, has found the following in her research study involving 500 modern car owners. Found that two-thirds of vehicle owners or drivers, that's 68%, felt overwhelmed with the cap capabilities of their vehicles with over the third of 40% of them admitting they did not use the technology to its full potential. Study also uncovered that unlike car drivers, unlike cars, drivers actively embrace all the other technologies in their lives, such as our computers, our mobile phones, TVs, laptops. Would we all agree with that? We're not afraid of that, are we? Who's, who has not got a mobile phone with them? You see what I mean? Dr. Martha Newsom, who facilitated the consumer study, said, car purchase being one of life's biggest spends, drivers should take more time understanding the tech available at their fingertips so that they don't miss out. Would you all agree this will make driving safer? Yes. Uh, I'm reminded uh, of a comment my, my much older brother said quite a few years ago about video recordings he just bought. He said, I've got a better one, but it's not as good. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's very true. We've been forced along the road, metaphorically, by things we don't want to have to use. Your wife feels comfortable traveling at speed, as mine does, without having to operate another ancillary system with more control equipment, buttons in different places. These things do tend to move around. It's like, um, Fog lights became mandatory traffic cars. Um, the control, and it's still true, is in all sorts of different places. And you have to, for the few occasions you might need to use that, you have to remember now just where is that? Is it left hand, right hand? Is it down there? Is it on the steering post? So I'm, I'm not convinced by that thing. Well, have a word with Dr. Newsom about that. Yes, young sir. <laughs> My son bought a car yesterday. He's got all the people one day on the toys. The option of spending meat and less having one day at a toy chip. The 20p was on the toy. Absolutely, a 23. Yeah, but he's taught by a guy who's got a 20 years on the toy. 
yeah, and, and I teach mine to use what my car's got and where that um, the students may not get a car with all the toys, or they might get one with more and priming them to expect. I think they automatically expect that every time another life found comes out, they're going to be something yeah. that they might have to be able to, to use. But a younger mind is more up for that. And what proportion of people on the roads do not. Um, I'm thinking of um, low traffic neighbourhoods, uh, unremembered mini roundabouts, came in lots of things that are evolving on the roads, which older drivers are still doing in the way that they were taught. And they don't have place to nothing but quiet. Yes, Nick. I think a relevant question about the technology card is you asked about the telephones. I'm looking at you, all the apps on your telephone. If you're using it in the same basic way that we've always used the telephone, just having one is just exactly the same. Possibly, yeah. And personally, I don't use my inactive cruise control because I'm looking much further ahead than adaptive cruise control. And I am adapting to the traffic situation much earlier than that new technology is currently capable. Well, to be perfectly honest, I don't like adaptive cruise control. I like cruise control. My wife prefers the speed limiters. I find the cruise control much more comfortable to use, but it's much more dangerous, in my view, than um, the speed limiters because the trouble, trouble with cruise control is um, you set the speed and you have got to look ahead. You've got to keep your mind on the road. Otherwise... If you see a problem, if you're driving along normally, you've got your foot on the accelerator pedal. As soon as you see a problem, without you even being aware of it, what does your right foot do? Comes off the accelerator. What does the cruise control do? Keeps flying forward, which nicely brings in, this is going completely off track now, nicely brings in the importance of keeping lots of space. It's my personal belief that if everyone kept their space out there, then the incident rate in this country would drop by 80%. And I believe, I'm going to be very controversial now, if I was to take the majority of you out on the road to assess your driving, I would probably find that probably 70% of you drive too close, but you're not aware of it. Would you agree with that? Yep. Shall we move on? I've only got three minutes. ADAS are developed to automate adapt and enhance vehicle technology for safety and better driving. ADAS are proven to reduce road fatalities by minimizing human error. Safety features are designed to avoid crashes and co co collisions by offering technologies that the driver, technologies that the driver to the problems. I've got, got that grammar a bit wrong there. Implementing safeguards and taking control of the vehicle if necessary. Now then, ADAS systems can significantly improve vehicle safety by incorporating key driver assistant functions. Maintaining a safe distance and controlling speeding, which is a factor in 22% of fatalities. I went to a local ROSPA meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had two police officers there from the North Yorkshire Police. And in North Yorkshire, they've got a massive problem with motorcycles. They reckon that motorcyclists make up, as me mentioned earlier, 1% of the motoring population. 
but in North Yorkshire, it accounts for 22% of all the fatalities. Okay. Um, again, speed appears to be the big, big issue. Thanks to intelligent cruise control and intelligent speed assistance, things will become safer. Adaptive features may, auto, may automate lighting, provide adaptive cruise control, incorporate satellite navigation with traffic warnings. And just one of the things that I've come across, you know, some of you have got cameras on your vehicles that tell you when the speed limit changes because they pick up the camera, don't they? The big problem with those is if you've got a side road with a lorry's gone past and it's moved the sign round, it can give you the wrong information. In fact, I was uh, doing some training in a brand new Ford Transit van and it had one of those great big um, iPads at the front. Give all the speed limits for the vans on a particular road going by the sat navigation. And what surprised me was the information coming on, on, onto the iPad was based on car speed limits. I found that appalling. A brand new Ford Transit van. Strange. So the point I'm making is do not rely too much on what you see on your screens. Use a bit of common sense. Use your eyes. Okay. Um, alert drivers to possible distractions. Assist in lane departure and centering. Provide navigation assistance through smartphones and provide many other features. So what is ADAS? As I said earlier, this is an acronym for Automated Driving Assistance Systems and applies to electronic technology that assists drivers in driving and parking functions. Modern cars have sensors fitted that can monitor surroundings and either alert the driver or take action in the event of a driver error. Using electronic technology such as cameras, radar, the area. So using electronic technology such as cameras, Radar, the area around the vehicle can be scanned for objects that the driver may or may not have seen. Then if a collision occurs or a collision is imminent, the vehicle warns the driver in the form of audio warning, backed by a visual warning on the dashboard or even haptic vibration through the steering wheel or seat. If the driver does not react to the warning, the vehicle in some instances may automatically intervene and prevent the collisions. Do all cars have ADAS? Not all cars have the full range of driver assistance functions. Many have individual technologies fitted as standard with others as optional extras. ABS is mandatory and there's moves to make more advanced to make more advanced driver assistance technologies such as auto emergency braking standard on many cars. Cars, lorries and vans can all have others, even motorcyclists. Um, so, can I be very controversial? It's my belief, and I've been doing this job a long time, I've experienced and everything, it's my belief that the driving test is probably getting to the stage where it's no longer fit for purpose. It's my belief, and I've held this belief for a long time, that anyone should be able to take a driving test in an automatic and drive any vehicle. I also believe that somebody going from a manual to an automatic, there should be some sort of training put in place. Because um, a lot of drivers go from 
manual to automatics and of all sorts of incidents. I could list the whole list of them, what they are. It's, that's my personal belief. And with all this technology coming in, why take a driving test in a manual? It's old. In fact, last Sunday, or was it week last Sunday, I was involved in something that I find a lot of fun in, taking young people, somebody may have heard of it, young drivers, taking them out on runways, anything from 10-year-old to uh, 17, out in cars and flying up and down these runways, and they absolutely love it. And I had a young man there, 10-year-old, I was telling him about the old-fashioned handbrake. And I thought to myself, what a waste of time, because when he gets to driving, they won't be around anymore. What a complete waste of time. I think, yes. I say the problem is with ADI, and lots of them here as ADIs, is we might teach in a vehicle adaptive cruise control speed, and there's just all the ADOS things that you're doing, and then they buy themselves a 2001 Peugeot 208 or whatever, and they've got to learn to use a handbrake. They've got, they haven't got clutch assist, they haven't got all the moves. So we actually taught when we were teaching in a slightly older car. And seven eight years old because that's what the market is that they're going to eat. I would say that ninety percent of driver trainers have vehicles now with assisted hill start. You know why do they want to learn clutch control? And the people say to me that uh, there's no point in driving an automatic car because um, I want to drive a manual. But you know it's been my experience that if someone buys an automatic, even if, or if they're learning to automatic, they'll say, oh, I'll learn an automatic because it's easier, and then I'll go and learn with a manual. They never, ever go to the manual. And people that go from an automatic, from a manual to an automatic, never, ever go back to manual. We're about 30 or 40 years behind America. They only drive gear shift, stick shift, for fun. And that's it. Thank you very much, everyone. So big thank you there to, to the IMTD for, well, first of all, inviting me along. Second of all, giving me the option to, to record these presentations. I thoroughly enjoyed the day and I thoroughly enjoyed the presentations. And I got to uh, catch up with a certain Emma Cottington, a friend of the show for the first time. And we uh, had a, a pleasant chat afterwards, which was lovely. And a special shout out as well to Kathy Higgins, who was the one that invited me and uh, gave me a nice warm hug when I saw her. So that's always a good thing. Um, but I did say that I would tell you a little bit more about the Meganar. So on the 3rd of August, and it's going to kick off around about 6pm, I am hosting the first instructor, Meganar. There are going to be nine speakers, and they're going to be delivering roughly 20-minute presentations. So you can anticipate maybe taking about three hours, maybe three and a half hours overall. It's open for all instructors to join. I say that there is a limit. Um, I can only afford so much on a, a Zoom webinar to pay for because the more people that come, the more you've got to pay. But um, yes, it's open for anyone to come and join. And uh, the best way to find out more is to sign up to the Instructor Podcast newsletter. And again, you can find the link in the show notes or you can go to the website, www.theinstructorpodcast.com. You sign up there. It's where we release the details. It's where we say who's going, who's presenting. You'll find out first over there. And so far, one person that we have announced is Stuart Lockery, who is going to be talking about why we shouldn't just listen to the DVSA and how we can be more 
than just a DVSA approved driving instructor. Um, so delighted to be able to announce Stuart there and we'll be announcing more throughout the rest of June. So yes, make sure you sign up to the newsletter for all the latest stuff around that. And all that's left to me is say thank you for listening. I genuinely appreciate it. I have done some big numbers this year and I appreciate everyone that's listened from day one and everyone that has listened for the first time today and everyone in between. So thank you very much. And remember, if you're not enjoying driving lessons, you're doing them wrong. The Instructor Podcast with Terry Cook. Talking with leaders, innovators, experts and game changers about what drives them.